All right, welcome to another episode here of Beyond Eight Figures. See those you're hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, Richie Ote? How's it going? How you doing? White Wade's holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And our condolences go out to the lovely Mary Goulet, who is not joining us today. Unfortunately, her, her man's dad dies with Dave, who is Mary's one and only uh, Dave's dad passed away. So our condolences to Mary and Dave and their families. And hopefully we'll see you next week. Mary, looking forward to that. All right. So here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs from across the globe who have either exited their businesses for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually, and we get to the bottom of the tactics and strategies that they have leveraged to start and scale and oftentimes exit from those businesses. And uh, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from you guys, so really appreciate that. Really appreciate you tuning in, and uh, really appreciate all the folks leaving the the reviews, uh, you know, for good, bad, or otherwise. You know, if this is your cup of tea, awesome. We appreciate the four or five-star reviews that you're dropping, and if it's not, we get that, you know? We're not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but either way, we appreciate you taking a moment to, to review the show on your platform of choice, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, thank you for doing so. And uh, just a, a quick heads up here. If you, if you haven't checked out any of the past episodes, uh, I mean, you are missing some pretty darn enlightening conversations. I mean, we've sat down with billionaires. We've sat down with people who've exited for nine figures, and we've sat down with people who uh, literally started from nothing. I mean, God, Antonio Smith Jr. went from living out of a dumpster as a kid for a period of time there uh, to creating a business that uh, grossed over $35 million last year. So, uh, again, make sure you do check out some of the past episodes, and we cover some really interesting ground, too. I mean, some some sexy businesses where you go, oh, man, that's hot, to businesses where you go, how did they make what they may do in that? I mean, it's it's like furniture. Like we had Steve uh, Steve Larson, I think is his name, right? We had Steve Larson on, and it, like $50 million in a furniture business, you or know? toner or, or sold, toner, sold right? Sold by phone. Yeah, you know, <laughs> toner for printers. You know, I mean, I guess what we're learning more than anything else is there is no shortage of ways to get to eight figures and beyond, and it's not always the obvious. So today's guest that I'm, I'm super excited to have on here, uh, Parham, and, I, and I, Parham, I'm, I'm hopefully not going to butcher your last name, but Parastaran, I think is per, perhaps how you pronounce it. Is that how you pronounce it? That is correct. All right, Parham, good to good to have you here. Um, good to be here. And uh, and and so what's interesting too is we find this on our other show, Reinvention Radio, uh, and on Beyond Eight Figures quite often that uh, uh, the entrepreneurs who seem to be doing really really well nowadays, uh, more often than not, are are immigrants. And <laughs> you know, and and there's I think there's uh, there's an interesting conversation around that that we that we will have. Uh, but just so that we can get this out of the way here, uh, right out of the gate, can you share with us how you qualified to join us on Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit a business for more than $10 million, or do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million or both? It, it was. I, I just recently sold it. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And, yeah. 
Okay. And is it, is it public information in terms of, because what you're talking about specifically uh, is CarX, correct? CarX Tire and Auto? Yeah, I was a uh, I was a franchisee. I had actually four different brands. CarX was one of them. I had a brand called Fast Tire. I had a brand Goodyear, which you've heard of. Sure. Um, and then I had another brand called Shoots Alignment and Fry Tire. It just it was just four different brands and uh, seventeen different uh, dealerships that I had. Um, and uh, February this February will be two years that I sold it to a to a publicly traded company out east. And then I had. I, I did two separate transactions. I sold the operating business to a uh, to a publicly traded company called Monroe, and then I sold my real estate portion of it to a publicly traded REIT, Store Capital. Um, so two different, si kind of simultaneously, but w you know, little gaps in between them. But ultimately, two separate buyers for it, to, the, to the combination of my company. Yeah, you know, and that's a it's a really good road to go down here in terms of structure yeah. that I, that I'd love to discuss, but. Suffice it to say, I mean, we're talking about 10 million plus. What was that number? Did you ever publicly share what those numbers were for each of those different entities? I haven't, but it's okay. it's it's quite a bit. Not quite a bit, but it's 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 definitely higher than that. Yeah, and and the majority of these outlets were in Champaign, Illinois. The majority of them were in Illinois. In um, Illinois. There was only three locations in Champaign, um, Illinois, uh, and Iowa were predominantly where the 17 locations were. But but uh, let's see, uh, 14 of the locations in Illinois. Chicago, there was a few. Mm -hmm. Middle Illinois was the base of my operation. Yeah, and I spent 44 years in Chicago before moving to San Diego uh. four, four years ago and uh, went to Southern Illinois University. Uh. So drove drove straight through Champaign-Urbana on, uh, on a number of occasions, occasionally stopping to grab a drink, of course, because I was 17, and that's <laughs> what you do. Uh, but, but just to get a sense of, like, where some of these locations were, so the smaller towns I don't know, Chicago I know, can you give us a sense? Are we talking you suburbs bet. or are we talking actually in the city where the locations were? So Chicago, I was in, I was in Naperville, I was up north by Antioch, mm -hmm. and then I was in Homewood, which is just a little south of Chicago. So for those who aren't familiar then with these towns, what's interesting is these are not – I mean, well, these are just not big cities, I think is the, the bottom oh. line. I mean, Naperville's a good-sized city, and, you know, Antioch, they're, they're good size, but the, the point being that the money's not always where you think it is, you know, and, and that's an interesting lesson here right out of the gate is, you know, they talk about location, 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 especially in, in terms of real estate, but that doesn't necessarily apply to location, location, location being a, a huge metropolitan market, especially when you're dealing with bricks and mortar. What's, what's your thought for around sure. that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, my one of my most, I can't say the most, but very close to most profitable store I had was in Danville, Illinois. And wow. Danville is kind of a... <laughs> it's a very blue collar, small, small town. Well, that's where some of the manufacturing um, plants are, right? It used to be. It yeah. used to be, but it's but it's very it's it's not what it used to be. But um, it, it's it's gone downhill quite a bit. But it just so happened to be I'm in the automotive business. We fix cars. Yeah. And so sometimes you know in the wealthiest areas aren't necessarily the best areas. They can be too because people have more money to spend and they do more maintenance. And then when you tell them you need tires, they're saying no problem, I'll go ahead and spend the money. Sure. But the smaller towns, the smaller towns people fix more cars. Mm -hmm. You know, they take care of their cars more because they they travel more rural, you know, they might go 20 miles and some of them go on smaller roads. They tend to take care of their cars more. So, um smaller location, smaller location. ticket more transactions. 
For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, and, and you know, the, the, the adage, uh, location, location, still applied. It just happened to be, you want to be in a really good location, but it doesn't matter. But some of them are in smaller towns. Yeah, interesting. So on average, what was each outlet doing in terms of gross revenue? A little over a million. Really? Okay. Yeah. And then when you sold... I'd stores doing two million, two and a half million, and then, um, but, you know, my, yeah, I mean, most, like, so, especially in some of these smaller towns, a uh, million, you know, million, million two was very normal for most of my stores. And and when you sold, was it as a, a multiple of gross revenue? Was it a multiple of net? Uh, was it a multiple? Like how do how was uh, the was the business valued? There was never a sheet of paper where I could see how the, the buyer was valuing it. And, and it was basically the best I can surmise was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight times my EBITDA. Okay. So it was EBITDA based. And, and, and just based on that comment, then reading between the lines, you hired a business broker or someone of no. that Nate. No. So how did you exit without knowing the details of the transaction? Oh, well, I knew that I did all the details of it. What I'm saying is I don't know how they viewed it. You know, I don't know what they did and what they did with my, you know, the, what my earnings were, what they did as ad backs. I don't know exactly what they did and if they actually put a specific number to it. But what I can tell you is that if I base it on what I know, what I got for it, and I knew what my earnings was, it was going to be around that. But the ad backs, I don't know how to calculate because I don't know what they counted or what they didn't count. Mm Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It it does, but they were buying the businesses only Only. because you held the real estate in in a different corporation. So for those of you who are thinking about doing something in a bricks and mortar environment, that's super interesting. Now, did you know that out of the gate or did you how did you how did you come up with the two structures? Well, no. So here's just just to be a little more specific. So about almost two years ago, I sold the operating company about. Three years ago, I sold all of, I bundled up some, the real estate and sold it to a REIT. Okay. The reason I did that initial transaction, w- bottling it up and selling it to the REIT. Can you hear me, by the way? Yeah, you're good. No, okay. you're totally right. good. My computer's saying it's got low. Uh, no, you're good. Um, just um, poor just connection. ignore that poor connection. You're good. <laughs> all right. So, so three years ago, I, I, I took the real estate and, and I had a broker. Uh, a friend, real estate guy, kept approaching me and says, why don't you sell your real estate to to store capital? And we went through this exercise about four years ago, and I was like, I'm not going to sell my real estate. And one of the reasons I didn't want to sell my real estate was the way REIT works is that they look at a company like mine and say, all right, this guy's got good earnings. He's got a solid company. Let's buy his real estate. He's going to turn around and lease it back to us. Mm -hmm. But the caveat is that I got to lease it back for 15 years if I'm going to really cash out well. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the important part. Mm-hmm. So it's a really tough decision for a guy running an operating company to want to then subject his operation to committing to 15 years of a lease with with somebody else. Okay, is that lease um, transferable in most agreements? Or it's is always it, transferable. It's it always transferable. Yes. Yeah. The problem is. And the beauty of it was that I sort of got to pick what I wanted to make out of the real estate. And I'll tell you why. Because the cap rate that was figured by the REIT was a, is a function of your rents, mm-hmm. right? 
And so I could make the rents be whatever they want it to be. Let's, back up. Like- Let's back up for two seconds. I just want to make sure folks are clear on this. So when, when we're talking about cap rates as it relates to real estate, what we're talking about is a percentage of a return that the investor wants on that real estate, right? So if it is a 5% cap rate, then that is going to have a higher dollar value in terms of the seller so- than if it's a 7% cap rate i know it seems funky but it's actually the opposite it works it works in all that's correct in opposite fashion please keep that is correct yeah and and so basically ultimately i have real estate and you touched on this earlier in small towns mainly small i mean champagne's not a small town bloomington's not a small town but for the most part you know i had stored in macomb i had danville these aren't exactly towns where investors are necessarily dying to buy real estate let's just put it that way yeah so i made the decision that you know what i want to cash out at least on the real estate start uh, part of it, because I have kind of a lot of chips within the same business on the same table. And I also thought if I cash out of the real estate, even though I got to subject myself to these 15 year leases, I'm going to jack up my rents just a little bit. And I'm going to really get a big chunk of my sale out of the real estate. And the reason I wanted the higher chunk of my sale out of the real estate was because I am also in the real estate business. I own shopping centers. And and so I could take the money that I got from the real estate and I could put it to a 1031 exchange and pay zero taxes. Okay, hold on. Let's slow down for a second. So folks, for for those who, again, who are unfamiliar (laughs) with the real estate conversation, so a 1031 exchange. So if you buy a property for a million dollars and then you sell it for $3 million, that $2 million gain is taxable unless you identify that as going to be reinvested in what's known as a 1031 exchange, where you can take that ten, that $2 million and then not pay taxes if you invest that $2 million into another property. So basically, you're just rolling over the profit, if you will, into another piece of real estate. Am I explaining that correctly, Parham? There's only one part is that that I'm actually not rolling the two million in that example. Okay. I'm only rolling six hundred thousand because I only have to identify to buy three million dollars worth of property, and I'm only going to put twenty percent down on it. So I still get to keep two point four million in ca- or one point four million in cash. Thank you for I, I forgot about that very important distinction. <laughs> yes, that yeah. that would be called leverage, my friends. That is how That's you right. leverage yeah. your capital when you have it. Yeah. Yes, thank you for so it, so, forgot about that important detail. <laughs> yeah. So if you're in the real estate business, like I happen to be. I thought I'm going to get the bulk, a lot of my money out of it. Now, I fully knew that because I'm subjecting the operating business to a much more stringent lease, much more higher lease, that's certainly going to reduce my EBITDA, right? But I said I'd rather sell my company part for less and get way more out of it on the real estate side for the exact reason that you and I just talked about with the tax difference. Yeah. And so just, uh, again, just so we're clear here, was this something that you thought about yeah. later or in terms of the structure of saying, hey, I'm going to have an operating entity that runs these shops and those entities are ostensibly going to pay rent to the owner of the real estate, which is still you, but in a separate entity. How did you get so smart around that? You mean originally why I own those in separate entities? Correct. Like, did someone open your eyes to that? Did you know that going in? Yeah, it just seems almost, uh, honestly, it's common practice. But the entities, honestly, were just a matter of of a business structure. So one was an LLC that would, you know, that I would own the real estate in. And one was the operating business. Most operating businesses, um, you could, I would venture to bet 90%, 80%. 
I should take that back. I don't know. But I would bet you that a high, high majority of operating business don't own the actual real estate. They yeah. tend to split those out. Yeah. Well, that I've known for a long time. I don't, you know, it was just something I just did. I mean, this goes back 22 years, yeah. three years. And it's interesting. I mean, to you, it's second nature, right? I mean, to, to, for the, and how about this? To the 20% of the people who may be getting into the brick and mortar world that didn't think about that, I mean, that tip alone, you know, could be worth a substantial amount of money. So you're totally if, right. Yeah. So even if we're just educating 20% of you guys right now on how to do that uh, from a structure perspective, and of course, it then begs the question of how else could you create different entities for your business and separate those out and create different assets? I mean, that, that's a whole other conversation. But and, and yeah, I Richie, mi- go ahead. I missed you were asking in there. Did he? I missed the answer. Or for him, it was second did, did nature. He, did he know that ahead of time? Uh, that was the part I missed. Did you set it up that way, or did you split it out later? No, right from the beginning. Got it. Because mm-hmm. this is kind of like what Chip Conley did with Joie de Vivre in the operations part. Of, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean for the hotel. For the hotel, yeah. yeah Chip Conley. That interview is a great interview to take a listen to. Absolutely. So, so uh, did, did you want to close the loop on any of that before we move forward? Well, one of the things that that you started by asking between the two transactions, I was telling you that you know I did the real estate first and then the operating business. Um, the parts I did not plan. I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be selling the 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 operating business a year or so later. I want to make sure that was clear. I wanted to take chips off the table and I wanted to cash out, reinvest that into more real estate and then still run my operating business. But I never had this sequence planned. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean, I would venture to guess that the operating side of the business was providing some pretty decent cash flow, right? I mean, I mean, these these all of the locations were making money at this point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, never. I wish uh, no. never <laughs> all locations make <laughs> it's the law of large numbers, and this yeah. wasn't even a large number. But but no, you're always going to have X amount of your your operation um, not running at you know at full cylinder. I think that's a honestly a lesson for anybody in business especially when they scale is don't freak out because just always assume and if it and if I'm wrong then great but always assume 15 20% of stuff that's going to happen is not exactly going the way you wish it's going and that's just going to be part of it mm-hmm. um just because of just there's people involved there's it's just it's just it is and you know what I'm talking about but yeah. So um, let, let's let's close the loop then on on the sale. So, I mean, a year into it, you're thinking I'm going to be riding this out for a while. A year into it, what happened to make you sell the the operating yeah. piece? Yep. Never intended, never intended to sell for a long time. Was certainly planning on doing this. I had good people working for me. I think uh, let's 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 just take them. In, they're not and these are no no order. A couple few things happened. One is. Um, I was expanding and I was at 17 stores, I believe at the time. And just like any other business that's, that has X amount of stores, you have X amount of structure to be able to manage the stores, you know, IE supervisors, managers, office staff, right. And I was at kind of a critical juncture with the number of stores I had where I had to make a decision of. I think my next step isn't going to be 18 stores or 19. I was starting to look at buying 10 stores at a time, 12 stores at a time. My next step was about 40. I had to get, I was sort of in this, this, this bad middle area. If you play Mm -hmm. tennis, we call that no man's land. Mm -hmm. I was in, I was in no man's land of tennis and 
I didn't like it. I didn't like that. And so I started looking at expanding and I started heavily looking at it. I got brokers and I was, you know, I was looking at stores in California. It didn't matter because now I was going to maybe a hundred stores or I was going to just go um, and just build the structure to be able to manage that. Along that way, a couple of things happened. One is it started getting increasingly difficult, even though we used to be really, really, really good at it to hire people uh, or the right people sure. as I was growing. I always, our company, I was lucky enough, our culture or whatever, you know, however that came about, we were always very fortunate to never have to seek and go after people. They just came to us. Hmm. We had a good reputation as an employer. Now, the reason we had a good reputation was for what you started the show with. I was in these small towns. Uh, people knew me mm -hmm. um, and knew our operation. I'm in central Illinois. Everybody knew Parham in central Illinois and what kind of operator I was, right? Yeah. Now I opened up stores. I had stores in Iowa City. Then I had stores in Davenport. Nobody knows Parham. Sure. They don't know how I operate. They don't trust me. I make an acquisition there. They don't believe anything I'm saying. They don't know I'm a good guy. You know, They don't know any of our culture. They don't know any of this thing. And all of a sudden, business changed. It started becoming what used to be very personal and how we did things. And now it's they just think of us as this big company buying people. And that's even though we only had 17 stores. Believe, by the way, sorry to digress. At, at 17 stores in North America, I was ranked number 71 in North America in size. Hmm. And, and that counts Canada, by the way. Wow. It's 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 ranked every year. The top one hundred are ranked entire magazine. And I was the number seven I was the seventy first biggest operation. Hmm. So that gives you a little idea of of that there's there's not a lot of people that own 17 stores. There's ones that own 50, 100, 200, a thousand, and then there's a bunch that own one. Yeah, so, so getting anyway, back in that no man's land, I got you kind of in that so, middle so, ground so, there. So, yep. so, so one reason was this no man's land. So I had to get bigger or, or maybe even get smaller. Mm -hmm. Then I had a couple of life changes. I had my book was coming out. Um, I'm a big psychology guy. I've been really working on self-development. And all of a sudden we, we had, you know, we had a small tragedy happen to with with one of my friends. And my perspective on life just really changed. And all of a sudden, I decided I don't think I want to be in this rat race. Mm -hmm. So I made a friendly phone call to Monroe, which is the biggest acquirer of these type of stores right now. They're the most aggressive. They're trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. And they know me. They knew who I am. And they were just waiting for the call. And they, I always knew they would be a buyer. And so in May, I reached out and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm considering this. I don't think I want to do this anymore. What What do you got? And, and literally... It happened as fast as I need. I wanted it to happen. Was it a pure, uh, pure stock transaction, or was there cash? So, as stock? A, it was a pure asset purchase. So, uh, so again, it cash? just cash, just an all cash deal. Yes, all cash deal. So, so life, life, some business decisions, and just uh, uh, a combination of me looking at the future and saying, I don't know if I want to do what the next step is. Mm -hmm. And was there an equal amount of cash uh, that, that ended up lining your pockets there on the on the real estate side as the operating side? Or was the real estate side much bigger or the operating side much bigger in terms of an exit? Which which was which? I mean, from a pure gross dollar amount, they were the same. But I by far exceeded, by far exceeded what I could have ever sold those stores individually as far as the real estate goes in there was just no possible way I could have you could sell an automotive store at a five cap rate. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. So yep. by far the real estate side. I gotcha. All right. So so let's go back, back, back then and let let's continue the conversation around 
just how important or what role being an immigrant played in in all of this. So you were you, you were born in in Iran, is that correct? That's correct. And how old were you when you came here to the states? I came here twice. I came here when I was one. My dad went to, to undergrad at Oklahoma State. So then I went back to Iran when I was five after he completed his four year degree. My dad got a job. Things were fine. And then at the age of nine, the revolution happened, mm -hmm. the Islamic Revolution in 79. Um, you know, uh, for those of you who are old enough, you remember the Iranian uh, American hostage crisis. Sure. So exactly during that time, um, we weren't I'm not Muslim. And so if you weren't Muslim in Iran during the, the late 70s, you were not welcome. So we all I mean, we escaped. Basically, we came here with political asylum, basically as refugees, not refugees, but we called the political asylum is what the official title was. Mm -hmm. And we we actually escaped um, through trains, automobiles, just like you would see sometimes in the movies. It's it's depicted in my book a little bit. But so we came to California, moved all over the place. My dad worked at driving buses. He drove a, you know, semi truck. We owned a little Yankee doodle dandy restaurant, you know, the typical immigrant restaurant mm -hmm. where there's four people working and the only four people working is mom, dad, brother, and brother. <laughs> um, that was us. Yeah. What else? Uh, so wait, we, so wait, just let's, and I want to just paint the picture there around what you guys left behind. So was, was, was yeah. mom and dad doing pretty good? Yes. Were you guys, I mean, were you, I mean, we're talking like upper middle class. We were. we're talking, well, yeah, like, no. I'm just trying to, I want to understand what you left behind and did you take anything with yeah. you? Yeah, so we took nothing with us. We came nothing. because we could. They froze everything. There was they literally froze everything that we had, and we had eight bags of our suitcases that came with us. Um, and that was because of our religious. Uh, that was because of religion reasons. They froze everything prior to us leaving. Religious persecution, no? I mean, for for lack of it, a better it was, term. Yeah. So all, like most of my dad's family, a lot of them got pris imprisoned and tortured and whatnot. And my dad said, "I'm not doing this." And so we escaped. They froze his business, raided his office. Um, my dad was doing well. Your question to you know where we were at. Um, best I can describe it is, you know, we had a pool. Mm -hmm. um, we had cars. We went mm -hmm. to a private school. Um, yeah. We were up-and-comers. I would say we were up-and-comers. But, I mean, um, in today's dollars, I mean, let's just say hypothetically he probably had, you know, a, a million dollars in assets between the house and the cars and cash and something like that. I mean, you know, again, not possible, not, sure. not crazy one percenter, but at the same token, doing doing fairly well. And, and, and came well, there here. he was doing well. Yeah, well, your Western-educated engineer working it, it during that late 70s was a big deal. Mm -hmm. so, so packed up, came, left, had nothing. Came literally with nothing, lived wow. in apartments. I lived in subsidized housing. I lived in the projects in Juliet. Oh, yeah, well, you know where Juliet yes, is. Yes, I do. Um, that's not a great town. No. <laughs> I so, hope you don't have any Juliet listeners, by the well, way. Well, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Juliet's got its... It's just not know, a nice place. It just it's had its moments, and now's not one of them. So the let me ask you this. The... The drive that you now have, how much of that do you think is related to not wanting to have to grow up as you grew up once you came to the States? Is there a number higher than 100? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of it. It's, it's, I talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk about this all the time. Um, let's answer that seriously. Uh, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. There was other issues I had. There was other driving forces. But being an immigrant, coming to the United States uh, in 1980, going to California, everybody's white and beautiful. That's where we first landed. Mm -hmm. Everybody was white and beautiful. Um, I remember uh, 
I remember literally having nothing. I remember going to, um, you know, making fun of my accents. I remember going into, you know, uh, your garage sales, buying some toys. I remember one time I had to return the toys because apparently we didn't have money. We grabbed them and had to return them. Everything was about being poor. Everything was about being an immigrant and everything was about being around shame for me. Now I had other issues. I was abused as a kid. I didn't have the greatest connection with my parents. I had other stuff, but mm -hmm. the point, and I think the point of the immigrant thing is it's baggage, it's pain. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing with the immigrant thing. It doesn't have to necessarily be a grim immigrant. I think you started the show by talking about a gentleman, I didn't recognize his name, that grew up in a, um, living in a cardboard box or something like no, that. No, living in a, like literally living in a dumpster, Antonio Smith. Living Jr. in a dumpster, yeah. there you go. Okay, so, so you know, we look at some of our, you know, very, you know, some of the, the great athletes, the, the, the great people in business, they had really bad struggles. And what they did is they hated what they had. And some of them somehow say, you know what, I don't want this. And I don't want this And the shame of it and whatever it may be. And for me, it was the shame. And, and I'm going to overcome it. So money and success in America is the ultimate way to gain respect. You can be a complete douchebag and if you have money and you go down the street in a Ferrari, people turn their heads and think that guy must be smart. Yeah. Right. And they admire that. We just admire that. And I got lured into that. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, just uh, again, I mean, how, how could you not coming from the the standpoint of, of living in subsidized housing and, and knowing that you wanted better for yourself and so on? I, I mean, how, how could you not? But let me let me fast forward this just a little bit here, because there's a lot of folks out here who. Well, they didn't have the the same upbringing that you did. You know, there was perhaps no abuse. They perhaps, you know, were lower middle class or something of that nature. And maybe they weren't for want and maybe they weren't on welfare or anything of that nature. But, you know, they had a, they still had their, their own struggles, and, but they didn't have access to, to capital. Right. So clearly you had all of that and you had no access to capital, right? So, you know, That's you right. have folks who have worse stories than you, folks who have, you know, stories that aren't as bad, right? Like, it just it obviously runs the gamut. But what I'm trying to get at here is, you know, you were on the lower end of that spectrum in terms of the halves. I mean, there, there was, you know, there was nothing there for you. You didn't have right. a family to lean on in terms of, you know, somebody with the silver spoon, or you could just go to the, for, for the trust fund. So take us through the, to, through the, the start part of your entrepreneurial journey like did you know you wanted to get into the car business no, to, no how no, did you no. raise money to sure. open the shop and then you know how did you open two and three and four and five like i, I just take us through the start phase of i got to do something here with my life okay so in, in high school uh i so we moved around a lot i moved between the time i was in fourth grade and a freshman or sophomore in high school I had moved 11 times all over the place mm. finally end up in champaign illinois uh, I used to play football. I come here. They already had a different quarterback. That I played quarterback, and so it didn't look like I was going to start. So I decided to quit doing that, and I start playing tennis. I get good at tennis really quickly, and by the time I'm a senior, um, I'm at the Division One level. Not recruited, but but um, a walk on and play tennis and. Mm -hmm. Did that for just a very short amount of time, quit, and I started teaching tennis for money. I pay for my all of my college myself. I happened to be in the aviation school, which was a little bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I start working as as a tennis pro and, and at a very low level, and all of a sudden I start getting a pretty good following. Next thing you know, um, I've got a waiting list, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. So by the time I'm a junior and senior in college, 
Um, I'm probably the highest, well, I knew I was. I was the highest paid tennis pro in Champaign. And I was coaching kids that went on to play Division One, and and I was going to make this my career. Uh, at the same time, I had seventy thousand dollars saved. Okay. By the time I was a senior from from teaching and uh, from teaching tennis, so I decided I wanted to build a tennis stadium or a tennis uh, a multi year multi year tennis camp facility training center. I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. I wanted to help these kids. I loved it. And I go to a bank and try to borrow money to open. Tennis facility, and I get rejected. So hold on, hold on, hold on one second. So we're starting to starting to get a little bit in the in the in the in the box there in terms of the. uh, uh, Sounds like you're in a in a tin can. So let's just check the mic on that. Let's see if we can get that connection back together because this is we're starting to get into the origin story here of the business. I want to make sure we get uh, get some details around this. But it sounded like you had seventy thousand dollars saved up. Uh, You wanted to build some sort of tennis facility. Uh, where people could come and they could uh, learn from you, and uh, and you obviously saw this as, a, as an entrepreneurial venture. So let's uh, let's see if we can pick it back up with hopefully a little bit of a better okay. connection there. Yep. Is this okay? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. I went to a bank and decided that I want to try to make this as a career and build a tennis center. I go to the bank, I get rejected, um, and the bank was just doing their job. I had no collateral. I had no co-signer. I had nothing. So I got rejected uh, and kind of got upset about it. At the same time, throughout the many different jobs that my dad did, when we landed in Champaign, one of the things that he had done is that he had a little hamburger shop in Waukegan, and next to it was a car X, which a muffler, and there were muffler shops at the time, little muffler shops. The guy who owned the muffler shop was a Pakistani guy. My dad's Iranian. They thought, hey, if he could own a muffler shop, my dad could own a muffler shop. My dad also wanted to move to Champaign because of school. We come to, for my brother's school. We come to Champaign. He opens this muffler shop up, and it's not doing well. So at the same time, I get rejected by this bank. I have $70,000. I go to my dad. I say, what's this automotive business like? He says, oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. I said, okay, I want in. So I put the $70,000 into this business and I start getting involved. Very short amount of time, I realize, holy crap, this is the worst ranked car store in the entire system in the country, doing sales of $300,000 a year. Hmm. And stuck. And I kind of was stuck. And at this point, I've put my $70,000 in. I had a huge stake in this automotive shop and I needed to make it a go. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, it, so did you, you know, and just it, so I'm clear on this, did, so you bought that automotive sh- shop outright for the 70 K or you became partners or I just want to, I became, sure. I became a major partner. I think that that initial 70,000, I bought a, a 25% stake, which was way more than it was worth. The store was doing 300,000 a year, but that's okay. It was also a family thing. You know, I wanted to help my, I when I found out my dad needed a little help. So I also wanted to help him too. Okay. Um, it turned out to be a very difficult, it, it, the company was struggling. The mm-hmm. stores were struggling. Mm-hmm. So I took exactly what I learned from being a tennis pro, which was, I was good at teaching people. And I started teaching the mechanics and the staff and I figured out, okay, all I got to do is make people happy. If I get one customer that walks in today, I fix this car correctly, even though I don't know anything about fixing cars, but I have a mechanic that hopefully I can coach. And if that guy fixes his car correctly, he, I smile, shake his hand and, 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 and promise that, that I'll be here. If you have any problems that hopefully that car will come back and he'll be, tell somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and that was it. That was the, that was my blueprint. That was my genius 
business plan mm -hmm. at the time <laughs> was just take care of every customer that walked in and hope it happens. The problem was was cash flow. So the seventy thousand dollars helped with the cash flow a little bit to get us through. And luckily, we sort of started improving. That store went from three hundred to five hundred. Literally. I remember within the fourth month, I started doing 50,000 a month as I started getting involved. It, it was literally within months, I started getting the sales up. My dad got a lot of confidence in me. Then we together opened up the second store in Champaign. And then after that. So did you, and for the second store, I don't want to just gloss over that. Did you, did you raise money to do that? Did you go to a bank and say, hey, based on our track record here with this first store, we believe we can do X with the second store? Just what was that what was that like yeah it is it, surprisingly easy so at that time this was 19 so the second store opened in 1995 uh, i remember exactly what i borrowed i borrowed 170 thousand dollars for that store mm -hmm. okay and did you put I up borrowed, the first store as collateral yes this was the early 90s there was banks they just gave you money yeah. it was you know it wasn't it wasn't very difficult for starters but the other thing that i would do is if i was needing actually 160,000, let's call it, mm -hmm. to actually buy lifts and open the store. By the way, I would rent everything. So the building was, I was doing, you know, I was renting from somebody. At that point, no ownership in, in real estate. Okay. So this is purely just opening the store. Let's call it that I needed $160,000 cash. I would write a business plan and I'm, you know, I'm just telling you the truth. I hate to say this, but I would write a business plan that said I needed 200. Sure. Okay, I wrote a business plan and, and I used $40,000 as inventory, mm -hmm. but I wasn't going to buy $40,000 worth of inventory. So the bank gives me 20% of that of that $200, and that's $160, and that was basically the money I needed to open the store. Yeah, 80% of that, but yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 20% 20, 20 of $200 is 40 and minus, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so gotcha. anyway, so so I was putting no money down. So, so no money down for the second store. The second store did better but it wasn't making money. At this point, my dad and I had a lot of conflict and the conflict basically was this. I was trying to grow the business. Hold on, hold um, on, hold on. I'm sorry, I just gotta stop you here for, two, for 28 seconds because I just wanna make sure that everybody's clear on this. So you knew you needed 160K. In, you went to the bank and said, I need 200K. And typically a bank's gonna ask you for 20%. So you're gonna have to put down 40K. So did you, did you borrow 40K ostensibly to put down the down payment. And then when you knew it was 160, you repaid the 40. No, in my business plan, let's to make it really simple. Yeah. Let's say I had $160,000 of, I needed for lifts, you know, the, the lifts that lift the cars. Yeah. Yeah. And then I would have $40,000 that I needed for inventory. Yeah. But the reality was I didn't need the inventory. That was a lie. Okay. So when you went to the bank though, and you said, Hey, I need 200 grand to do this. They, they would give me the 160. Oh, I got you. They would give you the one, but they but, would give you the one sixty, and I wasn't really buying forty thousand worth of inventory. I might have bought eight. But you would still have to put down something, right? Or are you saying they no. would just no? No, no, no. So, so think about it. So, so I come to you and I say, here's my business plan. I need one hundred sixty thousand to buy my uh, furniture and equipment, and I need forty thousand for forty thousand for inventory. So together, that's two hundred thousand. I need to start this new business. They say that's fine, but we're only going to loan you eighty percent. 
of that 200 is 160, which is actually what it cost me to start the store. The other 40 was made up. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, 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 I got you. And thanks for being so transparent around that. <laughs> but, what, but what's interesting well, is if, but you couldn't do that with physical real estate. This was just a loan. No, no, yeah. no, no. This was operating business. That's right. Interesting. Yeah, you would never be able to do that with real estate. Purely right. with, because, because if I'm getting an operating loan, and I can do this for any business, I go to a bank and I can be in a factory and I say, I need 200000 for tooling. I need $100,000 for furniture equipment it's going to cost me a hundred thousand for um yeah. for the build out of the offices and a hundred thousand for inventory so there's five hundred thousand and the bank says sure we'll loan you five we'll loan you but we're only going to give you 80 percent. so i'm going to give you 80 percent of that 500 yeah. but and i'm going to chintz out or the other way that i did it and as i got bigger was i did need inventory but then i would use the vendor and get and have the vendor get put the terms so it seemed like i still was putting forty thousand in but really i was getting it from a vendor for the bank so let's do this so beyond eight figures listeners let me be very clear here (laughs) we we are not uh we are talking about creative financing here uh we we are not proponents of uh of bank fraud or wire fraud or anything of that nature so there is our (laughs) psa uh for the moment but creative financing can work wonders if you know, I mean, so so there you go. I had, I had thrown the PSA there, Parham, just so to protect, Look, <laughs> protect ourselves and, and, and the listeners. And right, rightfully so. Rightfully yeah. so. But I will tell you this. When I was doing it, I wasn't doing it to cheat. So a lot of times. No, you were doing lot, it to grow. Of, it was the only was, way you were going to grow. Well, I was doing it for what you just said. It was, it was a creative way to get the deal done. And as far as the bank was concerned, there was at some point I would eventually need forty thousand dollars worth of inventory, but I just wouldn't go in and initially have it. So then I would make a bet with myself and hope. Ultimately, I was making a bet that over the once I opened the store, I can start using cash flow to build up to my forty. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? A little bit more, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Totally so, makes sense. And, and and I will tell you the other thing: things like this wouldn't happen if the environment wasn't that way, right? So the fact that even that type of creative financing came into my mind and that that early stages was because truthfully the environment was that way and people, they just wanted to get you a loan. So all they wanted you to show on paper was that it's worth something of that and they're only going to give you 80%. By the way, I I sit on bank boards and this stuff still happens. Nothing, Mm -hmm. nobody knows what the value of something is in in so many ways. Yeah, They just just, look to present... And it's a they guess. to appease the, the auditors, yeah. if, ultimately. And ultimately, the bank makes money by loaning money. So, right. you know, if they, if they put think money... you can pay back, yeah. If they think they can pay back the 160 and they, they look at the cash flow that they, you think you're going to do 600000 in sales and you're going to be able to pay this $3,000 a month back, they don't really care how you come up with that. Yeah. And once you have a track record of success, then opening up a third location and a fourth location, et cetera, becomes that much easier. Did you ever bring in any outside investors i know you were starting to talk about the differences no. between your the way your father no. operated and you had some yeah. oh, a falling yeah. so, out and, and so on yeah, the but, falling out the yeah. falling out was i was i was trying to grow sales i was i was a market share guy i thought okay the big picture the big philosophical difference with my dad was that he was a persian immigrant and i was trying to get out of being a persian immigrant yeah. getting out of a persian immigrant my sites were bigger i thought i don't really care that my two stores of champagne aren't making any money, but now I'm doing a million in champagne. Okay. Now I'm doing, now I'm doing 400 cars a month versus 200 cars a month. So a little bit more advertising. I'm going to keep spending money on advertising. I was a spender to grow. And my dad, all he thought about was what did we make today? Mm -hmm. He could not get himself to think in three years, if I build this market up, I'll own it. 
yeah. just couldn't think that way. And I understand that, but we just had a different philosophy. So we, we, we split and I went from that. I opened up a third store. I went from three stores to 10 stores incredibly fast. And this is the part for your listeners. That's so important is I went from three stores to 10 stores in a matter of year and a half back to the banks. The banks had no problem loaning me money, Parham, whatever you want. We got you. We got you. Just open stores. You're doing great. You're doing great. Truth is I was doing terrible. Hmm. Every store was either losing money, breaking even, or barely making money. Hmm. And the two original stores that were doing well, actually the three original stores that were doing well, sort of paid the bill for these other seven stores that I opened. And the reason I opened them was because I had the psychological need to look great. Back to your immigrant, yeah. right? So there's a, it's a double-edged sword. So because of my immigrant mentality and because of this admiration that I was craving and because of the shame that I was trying to avoid, I couldn't wait to open up my next door because somebody would say, Parm, how many stores you got now? Hey, I got five. Wow. Last week you told me you had four. That's amazing. How many stores you got now? I got eight. In fact, I remember putting license plate car X eight on my, mm. on a used 300 ZX mm -hmm. <laughs> because I wanted to look like I had eight stores even when I did, but that was my goal. So I opened up these really, I just started opening stores, very unsuccessful. And I lie. I mean, I played a game. I played a game trying to figure out how to manage no, you these said things. It. You said it the right way. You lied. You lied. You, lied. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, but well, it's, I, I write about this in my book because I did, I've done 15 years of psychoanalysis. So I've, I've spent a lot of time analyzing and having to go on through because I ended up with severe depression, uh, drug addiction and yeah. alcohol. I mean, just name it. I, I had it. And, um, I had to work through all this stuff. How you doing? So how, many... you, how you doing now? Seriously, amazing, yeah. amazing, absolutely. Yeah, you got to read my book, Perfect Pain. It's, yeah, well, um... so I was going to plug it. I was definitely going to plug it. So perfect. Yeah. perfect. But anyway, so the, yeah, yeah, please. I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of I made a lot of mistakes in business, and so I and ultimately I was just dishonest with myself and what the business was doing. I was doing it all for the wrong reason, and I just I'm really just trying to add on to your immigrant part of yeah. the story because it's so true. And and um, luckily I got out of oh, but and I went from ten stores back down to three. By the way. So you lost seven stores. Are you intentionally I lost closed seven seven stores? Richie, I Go. sold and lost. I lost and closed seven stores. You know, what's what's interesting is not only do we notice this with the immigrants, but we also notice the, that a lot of them went through that same pattern. A lot is that of right? them, yeah, a lot of them still remember like um, learn what's his name? Oh, Onyx and Go. Onyx and yeah. stuff. Yeah, like a perfect example. Same. He's successful, and then he got into drinking, and mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the. It, there the seems to be some, yeah, there seems to be some point to get to that eight figures where you have to do something in a personal growth scenario too. It's there's two separate things going on. There's the business growth and then there's the personal growth. And it just, man, it's at least 80%. Yeah. Well said, and I'll give you a great analogy for that. So if I'm going to build a building and you decide and we decide we're going to partner up and build a 20 store build 20 story building. We get an architect and we get a structural engineer and he designs the foundation to be able to withstand 20 floors, right? Well, in my case or the case of the people that you're talking about the immigrants and whatnot is when we set out, we don't know how many floors we're going to be. Okay. We don't know if we're going to be a 24 
20-story building, a 40-story building, or a 100-story building. We set out and we're doing, and we have all this foundation that's that's messed up because the foundation is built on anger. The foundation is built on I'm going to show you, Ego, like I yeah. want to show that, and all these other wrong foundational things, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I get to 20 stories, and now I've butted up against what my core ability and fundamental is on the personal level. You know, you said you need to work on yourself, so we've now butt up against our core strength. That's the that's the most we can go. So then we try to go 30 and it's hodgepodge. You're, you're mm -hmm. adding it up. And so you haven't done any rebuilding on the inside. And now you're trying to add 10 floors to what you're supposed to be 24. Now you can fix that. Regroup, work on it, work on personally, understand why you are the way you are. Understand that, look, you were fueled by shame. Work on that a little bit. And as long as you know why, understand it, then you can grow. And then now you can have comfortably 30 stories or 40 stories. Mm -hmm. no, that's a great point. Let me uh, let me let me do this because we're going to come up against it here, and I want to make sure that we, uh, we we cover enough ground here in the in the final few minutes. But you know, uh, congrats on on staying the course. Congrats, obviously, on uh, on getting Thank you. you know your stuff figured out and and being in a in a in a much power much more powerful much more pleasant space. And uh, having been there myself and bottomed out in November oh, 2013, I can uh, I can certainly relate to where you're at with that. I know you cover a lot of this in your book, Perfect Pain, and and certainly encourage everyone to go and check out Parham's book perfect pain uh but what, what what are you i mean look on on the surface you you made it you made it work you cashed out in the operating entity you cashed out in terms of the real estate and i know you still do investing and and still have other holdings and so on and so forth but uh you know make make it a make make yourself a little more human for us based on where you're at today in terms of what what do you still what are you still struggling with what what still keeps you up at night <laughs> Um, you know, the things that keep me up at night. So I have, I'm going to tell you, but I also have to tell you one thing that one of the things I learned along this journey by really going backwards before I can go forwards was that I realized that in life, business, whatever it may be, you know, you have to care, but not that much. And it's, it's the amount of importance that we put on certain things, especially in business and, and occupational stuff that, that sort of, that's what ends up making us crazy. So yes, I would like to make myself human, but from a business <laughs> level, <laughs> I don't worry about that much. I, what, what doesn't keep me up? The things that keep me up is, is making sure that I stay my course. And it's not to do with drugs or things like that, to make sure that I stay my course with being true and authentic to myself. Um, which ultimately means that I am always present and available for my three children and for my wife. Mm -hmm. That's the human part, and that's what I care about the most. Um, but as far as worrying, I don't. I've left that behind, and I swear to you, it has nothing to do with cat money in the bank or the fact that you know I don't have as much financial pressures as I did five years ago. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with that. I just at a point came to life, and which is why I really sold the business. Um, is that um, there's just more to it for me and there's just more to it for me and I don't have a lot of fear. I don't know actually what I'm going to do next. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen when I write the book. I didn't, you know, I don't know some of these things and I love living not knowing sort of what's going to happen. What I hated was living where I always expected to know what happens, in mm. fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, point well taken. And uh, and you guys can get more information on Parham and, and uh, the book Perfect Pain at perfectpain.com. So you made it really easy for us 
uh, on that. And uh, and I will tell you this that you know my uh, my other show, if you're not familiar with it, Parham is called Reinvention Radio, and uh, Richie Ote and Mary I've Holly. listened to it. Okay, I've sweet. To it. So. You know, what I believe is that reinvention really has nothing to do uh, with changing anything about who you are, but it's really just kind of getting back to the essence, the core of who you were truly meant and made to be and kind of shedding the shackles of the whims and agendas and outfits and personalities and characteristics that others have really thrown at you, including yourself, uh, over the years and really just getting back to the essence of, of who you are. So. I mean, it really sounds like uh, you, you've been able to reinvent your life uh, in, in so many ways, on so many levels, over so many years here. Uh, and I'm a firm believer that uh, no matter where you are on the path, you can go farther. And certainly it sounds like the best is yet to come for you, man. So really, uh, really admire where you're at and being willing to, to share, you know, and being so authentic and transparent about what, what it took for you to get here. Any, any final thoughts you want to leave the Beyond Eight Figures audience with? Well, the, the, the final thoughts are don't confuse, you know, I, I, I talk to entrepreneurs and I, and I talk to people that want to be successful and thing, but don't, don't confuse and think that your goal should be based on some monetary imaginary number. Um, I remember that feeling the same way when I made $200,000 as the first time I made a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. I always used to think that once I make $1 million a year, I used to actually use the number I used to use was $100,000 a month. Once I make $100,000 a month, it's going to cover everything. I'm going to be happy. That's all I need, right? But I vividly remember the year that I made $100,000 every month. And I was no different because my personality, my inside was still the same, yeah. right? So my to your to your to your listeners is don't confuse money with happiness. I know you hear this. But really work on yourself and everything else sort of will take care of yourself because you'll naturally gravitate to the things that you really want yeah. by avoiding and learning about the things that you don't want. Yeah, point well taken. Parm, thanks so much for joining us here on Beyond Eight Figures. We really do appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Yep. And, really uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah, man. All right. Well, guys, go, go and gals, of course, go grab uh, a copy of Parm's book. You can get more information there at Perfect Pain dot com richie wade you know uh man another another amazing story and, and talk about transparency and authenticity and yeah. you know i mean he caught himself on the i lied but but you know he, he's he well, readily i don't think, I don't think he caught himself i think he was just adding to it he didn't he knew he said it yeah <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like he wasn't a, he wasn't trying to hide anything yeah i think it just shows too um how important s- staying the course through struggle sure Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the immigrants come over and they see this as Disneyland to the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's all this opportunity of which we just take for granted sometimes. Yeah. And then but you still got to stay the course. Yeah. You know, and and really when you come right down to it, it is as I talk about and what is your what? I mean, it is a matter of finding that one amazing thing. And in her, you know, in Parham's case, it was it was cars and tires. Right. So it doesn't always have to be glamorous. It doesn't always have to be this sexy thing. And it can really open some some big doors for you. So. All right, my friends. Well, Parham, awesome having you on again. Check out perfectpain.com for Richie Ote and White Wade and Kelly Pelker. I'm Steve Olsher. Talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.